Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name's Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and once again, really happy to bring you another episode of our podcast. And look, in today's show, I speak with Anthony Williams, who is the founder and managing director of a company called Modus Leadership Development. So I've known Ant for a number of years now. We do operate in the same overall industry of focusing on building leaders. And I think the interview is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is Ant has uh, come to the, the conclusion that there is a distinction between sales leadership and general leadership, and I really wanted to explore that a little. And the second is this idea that we are constantly learning, that we should always be constantly reflecting on our leadership. And I think near the start of the interview, Ant shares uh, a, a pretty candid story about his first leadership role and uh, what was said to him by one of the people that reported to him. So once again, uh, would always love to hear what you think and happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Anthony, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it. So that the listeners have a, some context, you want to share a little bit about uh, you and who you are? Sure thing. Well, thanks. It's great to be on your podcast, uh, Julian. So uh, my name is Anthony Williams. I run a business called Modus Leadership Development that really focuses on working with leadership teams across Australia. Um, mostly in that sort of senior leader and executive uh, sort of table challenges that those leaders face and both working with them to develop their skills as leaders, but also to help iron out any kinks and how they're leading or coming together as a team. So it's something I've been doing for quite a long time. Uh, actually probably started in leadership development now back 12 years ago with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And yeah, I love it. I, I absolutely love what I do. I think I'm really fortunate in that um, I get to <laughs> I get to help rid the world of terrible leaders. I think um, and and see people really grow and enjoy what they do. But you know, leaders have such a big impact on people around them that it is a, such a rewarding thing to see leaders improve in their skills, in particular in how they behave and operate around others, um, and to see the positivity that it can create. Not only that, but also obviously the business results that get improved as well. And is there an interesting fact about you or Modus that uh, the public might not know about? Oh, I'm going to do one on each of those, if that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think the, the interesting fact about Modus um, would have to be that we don't do anything off the shelf. Everything's bespoke. So we really do our homework to understand, to have, you know, create a deep understanding of the client's industry, their, their business context and their strategy, and then we design around that. So I think that's what really makes us a little unique on that front around leadership development. But then on the personal front, oh, look, one of the things I've been doing for over 15 years is competing on the world circuit for freediving. Freediving is a sport where you go out into the ocean into super deep water, you run ropes down, and it's a competition to see who can go down the greatest depth on one breath, retrieve a tag, swim all the way back out to the surface without blacking out. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to leave that to you rather than uh, take that on as a sport. Is that, are there a lot of people that do that? No, no, there's not many, <laughs> there's not many of us because it's just not a very popular, not a very fun sport. In fact, quite the opposite, it's quite uncomfortable and it's a sport that has a bit of risk to it, but it also is a sport that evokes a lot of fear in the athletes. I've always been fascinated by it because um, my earliest degree was in, in sports psychology and in human performance. So to find a sport that really tested people on discomfort and fear uh, it's just been fascinating to go through firsthand and learn the experiences of how to overcome some of those challenges. So I'd like to take you back. I'd like to take you back all the way uh, back to your very, to the start of your leadership journey. Uh, what was the very first leadership role that you had? And are you able to share a little bit of context around that? Hmm. So 
It is a while ago. <laughs> so it was after university. I'd been working from my, by myself for, the, I don't know, six months uh, as a sports psychologist in New Zealand, doing some work with um, mostly individual athletes uh, and a couple of rugby teams. And then I got invited to go and work in a, a beautiful little town called Queenstown down in the lower South Island. And I was in a team building company putting on exotic, crazy team building adventures using all sorts of bespoke means of travel and uh, like helicopters and jet skis and bungee jumps to create these unique packages for large corporate groups when they came to conference in the town. And after about a year of doing this and thinking I was pretty good at doing it, I got promoted to become a manager. Uh, really, it was just because our company, our very small company, was expanding. So we brought in we brought in a guy by the name of Harald, and Harald was full of energy. He was super keen to get in and make a difference, to do all these programs and to deliver them. And I was his manager. And after one year, Harald quit. And I remember driving in a car with him out to the airport. Um, soon after he quit, <laughs> he said to me, "Aunt, you're the worst manager I've ever had." <laughs> it was. Uh, I thought he was crazy. I thought, well, firstly, that's uh, you, you're wrong. That, that can't be the case. <laughs> and a little offended. And it wasn't until uh, quite a bit later, where I had a little bit more self awareness, that I realised he was absolutely on the money, and that really all I had done for a year was compete against him because I felt threatened by what he brought. So not not a great introduction to to leadership uh, for me, but. I don't know, I think that's often the way with leaders. You get thrust in, no one gives you the manual on how to lead, and then you make a hash of it, and, and you kind of, you you start, right? You start to figure out what works and what doesn't. And so what what were some of your, your biggest learnings from that, that role and that uncomfortable direct conversation? <laughs> oh, well, he didn't tell me why I was such a terrible manager. Um, <laughs> which made it a bit harder for me to get some self-awareness going. Um, and I, to be honest, back then I didn't do much with it at all. I, I think I was, like a lot of people, when you first become a manager, you you tend to do more of what you did before. You know, the things that made you successful, you tend to hold on to them even tighter rather than trying to pick up new skills around leading others. So I think what happened with Harald is, you know, he came in. He was he was good at what he did. So I, I thought, well, far out. I'm the manager. I, you know, we're both doing this, this team building stuff. I'd better be better than he is. So in effect, the lesson for me was that I competed against Harald rather than supported him, coached him, developed him, teach him stuff that I'd learned over the previous year. And as a result, yeah, man, I was I was a ter- terrible, <laughs> terrible manager. Um, incidentally, I do still keep in touch with Harald. We're good buddies now, but um, he probably doesn't speak to me for at least a year. <laughs> was it during that role that you thought or decided that leadership was for you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I thought I was a natural leader who had who was entitled to lead because I was good at what I did. Um, none of that was true. Uh, I went on after that to do a, another leadership role almost straight away, and I took into that next role a lot of bad behaviours. Um, and I think I, if, if it were possible, I think I even got worse as a manager simply because I, I wasn't getting good feedback around the things that were working and the things that weren't. And I think I was probably too naive to to actually confront some of that stuff and, and to ask people for more direct feedback because um, you know, I was young, I had a lot of ego involved and uh, you know, I thought if I tried harder with the, the things that were in my comfort zone, which was all the technical things of how to do um, the job, then then that would be fine, right? So I think I, I began to get okay at managing, you know, following process and, and understanding and the, the importance of things like administration. Um, but I never really got my head around the leadership side of it. And how long were you in that particular role? The first leadership role? Um, yeah. It was only uh, a year before Harad left. And then um, it wasn't long after that that I decided to to um, to get out of that line of work and um, a, a role came up which was to work with a, um, a team that competed in MotoGP. So motorcycle um, racing over in, in Europe uh, on the world circuit and that 
they got me so excited because, you know, I trained as a sports psychologist. So I thought, what an opportunity. I'll, I'll head over to Europe and work with this motorcycle Grand Prix team as not only the sports psychologist for the two riders, but it was a startup team. So they were giving me the responsibility as the, to come on as the head of human resources, I guess. To uh, My first job was to go and hire 20 race staff. So then I was thrust back into a, another leadership role as a result. Okay. So did that move turn out to be the right move for you, do you think? I started to, I think at that stage it was a good move for me. Uh, I still hadn't had anyone help me with any feedback on how I was leading. So I think I was still a crappy leader, as I alluded to before, probably worse at some stage because it was motorsport. In a motorsport, it's very male-dominated. There's a lot of kind of macho behavior that happens, or at least there was when I started. And I think I just kind of colluded with that and became quite a direct command-style manager. I think in my better moments, I was, you know, kind of a more collaborative uh, empathetic leader but most of the time I think I just bossed people around and told them what to do I th- that's why I say I think I got worse because even though it was tolerated in that environment because it was motorsport it was all exciting and fast-paced uh, I looked around for signals around what other leaders were doing and most of them were pretty poor um, poor role models um, and unfortunately I, I adopted a lot of their behaviors Hmm. And, and when you think back on that, any any particular learnings that, that stand out for you there? Yeah, I think the the best learning I had um, to share at least one thing that was positive was there was always a crisis happening. And, um, you know, you like, I, I remember this one time we were up in, up in Le Mans and we'd been to a race. Uh, so this is up near Paris in France. We're in Le Mans. We'd done this race and we'd been going from competition or race to race for, um, it felt like months and everyone was tired. We we're exhausted. And because this race was in France, we had driven up from the South of France. It takes, I don't know, it would have taken 12 or maybe 10 hours to get up there with the trucks. And after the race finished, everyone was just exhausted and wanted to get back to the hotel and just go to sleep. Uh, so, you know, you've got uh, probably 15 or 16 people there in this team so you've got the riders you've got the crew chiefs you've got the crew um, you know for both sides of the garage because we're running two bikes with two riders and I remember it got to about I don't know 11 o'clock at night uh, after the race and everyone was shattered and um, the, the, the driver from DHL had arrived with his truck to take to pick up our, um, our container freight and to take it away and once he had loaded it onto his truck um, it was so heavy and so overweight that the suspension had gone flat on his truck. And he was saying to me in French, I can't, I can't leave. It's too heavy. You've got to take this off and order another truck. And it was coming close to midnight and we really needed the whole, if, it, if we were going to do that, we needed the whole team to stay to, um, to offload this, this poor truck. Um, and I think what, what the MotoGP experience taught me was how to have a really level head under that crisis situation because the crisis seemed to just come up all the time. Um, and so in that scenario, I sent the whole, I decided to, to make a quick decision and send the whole team home, uh, sorry, back to the hotel to sleep and to recover. And, and I stayed there with the DHL guy um, with my pretty crappy French to firstly try to cajole him to just drive it anyway. And he refused, which was, the wise decision but then really working with him and to get back in touch with the head office um, you know emergency line of DHL and, and 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 work through probably for the next hour until about one in the morning to get a resolution which was to bring other you know different trucks out um, and then I just stayed there and and we got we got the freight all away that night early in the wee hours and that taught me that you know leadership should start from the front if I really take responsibility for that role, then I've got to put myself out there and lead from the front and to some extent also protect those people around me to recognize where their limitations are and not push people beyond that and just be a lot more empathetic in how I'm leading. Why did you decide to, to leave that role? Sounds like a pretty exciting uh, uh, thing to be a part of. Oh, it's really exciting. So every two weeks, we're in a different country. We're, um, we're racing motorbikes. It's exciting. 
crowds of you know sometimes up to 90,000 people were coming in to watch these races it's being broadcast live on Eurosport and yeah you're hanging out with these riders and, and you know who are celebrities um, all around the world um, getting paid squillions of dollars and it is easy to sort of think wow this is this is cool I'm doing the coolest job ever and I did think that for a long time but it also came with a quite a negative side and the, and the biggest negative was that I observed that in the MotoGP paddock at the time, so this is going back to 2000, early 2000, I couldn't see anyone in the entire MotoGP paddock who had a marriage <laughs> that was actually a healthy, vibrant marriage because everyone just seemed to live and breathe racing. In fact, I remember going to races where after the motorbikes had been set ready for the next day of racing, that the crew chief, some of them would actually unroll a mattress underneath the motorbike and sleep underneath the motorbike so that no one would tamper with the bike. Such was the level of dedication and passion for what they were doing. And I just found that it was impossible to maintain any relationship. And I thought long term, how am I gonna how am I gonna do this? If I want to settle down, have a family, every two weeks I'm in a different country and the stress that would put on a relationship. So in the end I decided that my, my own personal value set was around having some degree of stability and, and relationships were going to be really important outside of work for me. So, yeah, I decided to transition out of it. How long were you in that role? Because it sounds like it could wear you down pretty quickly. It can wear you down quickly. I was in that role for three years. Two years was racing. Well, actually, two and a half years was, was competing. And then we ran out of money. So I spent six months working with the other two directors to sell everything. Um, that was quite a painful process to sell everything, pay off all the staff, make sure that they weren't left out of pocket, um, kind of lick our wounds a little bit before we headed back, um, back to New Zealand. Well, actually, I went back to Australia from there to take up a role um, in back into organizational psychology, which was also part of my training, was to be sort of, you know, qualified in that um, as a registered psychologist that could work in org psych. And that really fascinated me, and I wanted to try to make that transition out of sport and into a, a more commercial enterprise where I was working with leaders around, um, you know, the same sorts of things in human performance rather than with athletes. So I know that uh, in between the, the GP and now that you've had a couple of other roles, but I'd like to sort of uh, explore uh, your current role now and, 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 and what you do. So are you able to share a little bit more about uh, MODIS and your, your leadership within that? Sure. So MODIS really specializes in two areas. One is that we provide leadership development. And the second thing is that we do Salesforce transformation. So with the leadership development, I, I touched on it before, mostly I, we do work at frontline, but really we specialize in middle management, senior and executive. Sometimes like at the moment, we're working with a large energy utility where we're doing all of those across the business. And when you have an, uh, an enterprise multi-tiered leadership development program that does enable you to get a lot of uh, alignment in that program right throughout the business. So we do specialize in that type of work. The sales transformation work is also quite fascinating because it's, for me, I have a view that sales leadership is different from normal leadership. Um, easy to get into a, <laughs> a debate over this if it truly is different, but sales you know, if you're in charge of sales, then, then you're at the pointy end of the business. You are responsible for driving the revenue, hitting the number. And if your team fails to deliver that, the entire organization is going to be placed under immense pressure as a result. So therefore, the pressures are higher. You are measured more tightly. And there's no you know, real scope for a lot of sort of ambivalence and coasting. And so as a sales leader, we encourage people to adopt a certain type of leadership approach that creates what we call sales tension in their team. Um, and it's different to normal leadership. So we do quite a bit of work around that as well. We are working uh, in through Asia uh, and Australia. Most of the work at the moment is still within Australia uh, nationally. So we're working with uh, companies like Talus, who provide um, services through the Defence Force uh, a lot. We, uh, we work with companies like uh, Alinta Energy and Fujitsu, Sportsbet. Yeah, a lot of really good, strong um, Australian brands uh, as well. Okay. And so I'm always curious about what people uh, are learning about themselves as leaders when they're, 
when they're specifically when they're leading uh, their own business, such as, as you and I do. So what are you learning about yourself? Huh. Well, every time I run a leadership program, if I'm honest, I will be learning so much from the participants as well. I'll be, I'll be going through a particular topic with them. And I'll be going, oh, am I doing this stuff myself? Where else can I be using this? And, and that applies to almost everything. I, I think it's, it's just a lifelong journey becoming a, a really good leader and one that truly self-actualized. So I get insights when I'm running leadership programs around front for me as an individual leader, becoming more self-aware around where my flaws are as a leader, where my opportunities to grow are. And I also spot uh, opportunities to think more about how, how I can use some of the tools and frameworks around anything from how to have a more effective conversation with my own staff through to things like how I could be using, using some of the great frameworks that exist out there to think more strategically about growing my own business or where I can apply them with other clients who are maybe struggling to, um, to think more strategically and longer term around their own businesses. So honestly, it, it, it's a real privilege to work in this space because um, it's so different to what I had earlier on in my career where I had just like this complete vacuum of leadership knowledge trying to figure it out for myself, making all manner of mistakes and um, you know, having a big impact on poor people like Harald <laughs> and, uh, to where I come to today where it's like, I, I feel really blessed to have all this access to this knowledge and these wonderful frameworks and I get to share it and to help people apply it into their own context as well as then reflect back and make it relevant for my own business. Yeah. I'm 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 curious to just to to go back and explore that that point you mentioned about the difference between sales leadership and I suppose you call generalist leadership. When did you come to that view? I came to that view after working with a lot of different sales teams, uh, in particular after spending time uh, with one client who who was having a lot of issues in their sales force. Now this is a large organisation that does billions in revenue, whose um, sales force was underperforming. And we were looking firstly at what the sales leaders were doing that was creating or leading to this issue as well. And when we looked at the sales leaders, we saw uh, one of the things that they actually asked us to do or as part of what we agreed to do was to go and benchmark out there. What does a good sales leader actually do? And it, it was a curious question to quite try and ask because normally we go, well, you know, leaders are all, all, all the same, there's no real difference, so therefore we should just teach um, these sales leaders exactly what we teach everyone else. But we decided to go and have a look around and, and there were these traits that came through when I went and met with, I think I met with about a dozen directors of sales from all across Australia with the clients that we're working with and there were six things or themes that really stood out to me. The first one is that a good sales leader creates a pace setting environment more often than most leaders. Pace setting is a style of leadership that we normally associate with uh, going at pace and, and always looking forwards, never slowing down, never letting up, creating a tension in the business that always, you know, we're always on needing to perform. And over time, it's, it's quite negative. It's quite um, impactful in a, again, a negative way to, um, you know, to just, to morale often. And so we kind of discourage it with normal leaders using too much of that style. However, with sales leaders, they need to use it more often than not. They need to spot when, uh, when to create more of a pace setting style to create that sales tension and to drive people um, to get the best out of people to really unlock their potential. We also found that sales leaders, the good ones, were spending at least 50% of their time in the field with their people, coaching, supporting, developing watching them in client meetings without interfering and then giving them immediate feedback in the drive to the next meeting and really helping them through their own experiences. And the ones that didn't do that, um, you know, spend most of their time in the office, typically were, um, were running sales teams who were underperforming. There were a couple of other things that really stood out. They were able to constantly think ahead, solve problems. They would drive activity and team motivation, which is, I guess, similar to what you'd expect a normal leader to do. But often as normal leaders, we often get approached with problems and we push them back, you know, to coach people to come up with their own solutions. And in sales leadership, we still do that, but we never leave the table until a solution has been found. It's about this, again, this pace environment of 
yes, I want to teach you to think critically and solve your own problems, but we're going to sit here until we've got a resolution because we have to do this. We have to figure out how to, how to um, get in on this bid or how to convert this piece of work. What comes with that is maybe even a different balance of, of how much challenge you put into the environment as a, as, as a leader versus the amount of support. So in a normal leadership role, you balance that quite carefully. In a sales role, often we're finding that more successful sales leaders are placing a little bit more challenge into their environment to really try to drive the right level of high performance. Thanks for that, that insight because I think it's a, you know, I, I probably hadn't really thought of it, thought about it a lot, but hearing you, you know, walking through it, you know, there are certainly some some significant differences I think to the and leading a sales team, which I've done in the past as well, and, and to being a, a, I suppose, more generalist leader, it's 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 yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, well, it's just my own sort of reflection on on the differences between the two, and and yeah, normally people argue with me over the point, but I, I'm convinced after working with a lot of sales teams, and like yourself, being in a sales role and leading a sales team, it is different. Mm. So I'd like to uh, now explore some of your some more uh, broader views on leadership. What's the biggest myth about leadership that you've come across? I think the, the greatest myth that is often held uh, in organizations is that the people who are running the organization, who are the most senior, have got there because they are uh, some of the best leaders or have some of the most endearing traits as leaders. But often I find that um, when I'm working with executives that yes some of the things truly impress me but the, the things that i often see that are um are, are so impressive are around management skills the technical background the depth of experience been through everything and seen it and therefore they are amazing problem solvers but i still see in, in australia a lot of underdeveloped leadership and and that's for me that's from general manager through to executives where I don't know, I think as we get tasked with more authority, responsibility, and, and there's so much pressure on us, there's a tendency, a forgivable one, a tendency to kind of go, well, maybe it's okay for me to tell more these days and to be more decisive in the moment, direct traffic, and to be quite command in my style of leadership. And while that gets immediate results, and you might think, oh, well, that's getting results. I feel good about this. It tends to leave behind a wake. And the more and more I work with executive teams, we start exploring what, what wake are we leaving behind as an executive team? 360 surveys have become more and more prevalent over the last, I'd say, the last decade. And that's helping, like helping to build awareness. But a lot of my work is around helping take, take things from uh, an awareness through to an acceptance and then actually doing something about it. And that requires a lot of humility for a leadership team to actually slow down, take a big pause and go, how, do, how can we be doing this better in order to genuinely create the right climate and culture for our people? Unfortunately, what I see more of, or at least quite a theme around, is, is leadership teams going, why is our culture poor and how do we fix it? And what sort of campaign should we run um, or what initiative should we do without first kind of going, well, how are we contributing to it? And uh, I'm always interested to know how people think of themselves and how they describe themselves as leaders. So if I have to ask you, how would you describe yourself? I think my leadership has changed a lot over the years, or at least I'd hope it has. These days, I think I'm a lot more humble than I used to be. It used to, honestly, it used to be all about me and about what I could deliver, what I could produce, my technical skills, my expertise, whether it was good or average. You know, it was just all about me. And it took me probably too long to really figure out that it's actually all about others. It should be all about we. So the, the things that I try to bring now for my own team is, is making it more about them, to be honest, and, and trying to understand uh, and, and be more socially aware, more socially intelligent, if you will, around how they're experiencing the work that we've got going on, how they're responding to it, making sure that they've got the things that really engage and motivate them, uh, recognizing that for us to do a really brilliant job on any one piece of work, I've got to have the heads and hearts in the game. And a lot of that comes down to what sort of environment I'm creating. So if I'm creating an environment that's, you know, just 
too challenging or um, too aggressive or too dictatorial, it's just not going to work. So a, a lot more of the time, I'm uh, I'm now trying to slow down my own urge to just get in and do work and to be operational and get my hands dirty to to really trying to deliver results through others to encourage support them uh, and to and to spend more time coaching I, I still don't think I do enough of this and I want to do more of it is is to really demonstrate that I care about their own development and their own careers by by creating more space one-on-one to just to coach and nurture and 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 I actually think as a leader that that would have to be one of the most rewarding things I could do because then I'd get to see them progress and I'd have stronger capability around me, um, that, which means I can delegate more and all those great things come of that. So, yeah, that's the sort of leader I think I, I'm still aspiring to be, but I'm on, on the road towards. I hope that answers your question, Julian. Sure, sure does. And... I'm always, I think it's because of the work that, that, that we do, I'm always curious to, to know what methodologies, frameworks, models that uh, leaders and, and other people doing similar type work are, are using. So are there any, any favourites that you have? You know what? My favourite model is quite an abstract model by uh, an author called Proshaka from way back in 1977 which is called the transtheoretical model of change. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but when I was way back doing my masters of psychology, I remember sitting in the lecture hall, listening to a very dry lecture on introducing this model of the transtheoretical model of change, thinking, oh my word, this is the most boring dry thing I've ever heard. There is no useful application in the world for such a model. And then ever since then, I've used it <laughs> with, with so many of my clients to, to explain human patterns of behavior when we change something in an organization. Uh, and, and it can be used to describe how, how as smokers, with the pattern we go through when we try to quit and then end up relapsing back to the start, uh, how we sign up to you know wonderful offers of health clubs and things and Christmas and New Year when we set a New Year's resolution and then we never go to the bloody club for the next year, yet we sign again the following summer. And it also describes how difficult it is to pull someone through a change, any change in an organization, when you're trying to lead them. Uh, And that's a model that I would really encourage other um, people, especially in the leadership circles, to be to be sharing because it's the most beautiful way of, of helping people understand why resistance occurs and the role of the leader to help transition people through different stages of changes because it's such a it's such a natural way that we move and evolve through change and we all go through these steps and, and to think that simply because I've changed something in the organisation, I've moved from Excel and now we've got this CRM. You must change and use it immediately. It's just not that simple. As humans, we were really comfortable using Excel, and therefore all these behavioral patterns um, take place before I'm willing to genuinely move towards this new CRM. So this is a model that it helps people understand that and to help people pull people along through that a little quicker. I'll have to do some research on that one because I think I've come across that in a in a sales book. Uh, that I read called Cashvertising, which makes no mention of a guy called Prashaka. So I'll have to find out the source. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. But yes, he was, he was, well, maybe even be she, was the original author back in 1977. Cool. So what would you say your biggest leadership challenge is right now? Biggest leadership challenge now, well, with my own company, is deciding the pathway to take next. You know, experience from being a leader in different roles throughout my career is that it's only until you get to that uh, that level where you're you've got some responsibility for the direction, you know, truly for the direction of the company that it forces you to think in ways that you haven't before around what what is it you actually want, what is it that you could achieve not only for yourself but for others who are in business, and even more importantly, what can you contribute to the community. And honestly, I never really thought about that before, but I'm in a really interesting space now going, do I want to grow my company? Now, most organizations go, hey, that's a given. Every organization is about growth. Come on, you know, get in more staff, grow, get some investment if you need it. 
and see what it becomes. For my own company, I'm going, well, maybe there's an optimal size that I want to try to achieve that gets the right number of staff, does the and does high quality work, but anything beyond might create a whole other set of new strains in the in my business that I don't really want. So that's part of my leadership challenge at the moment. And then the other part is, what do I want to contribute back to my community? And it's a question that I've only really started asking myself recently that I think is such an important question for every business leader to, to start asking. You know, if you're on an executive team, you're in a really privileged position. And I think you know, we all need to acknowledge how much the community supports us to be able to run our businesses in the first place, that it's, that it's a fundamental requirement that we have to think about what it is that we're giving back. Simply beyond being good tax-playing citizens, I think we have a, a responsibility, a role to play in enhancing our communities. Not something, again, I've figured out. Um, I, I tend to, at the moment, just do a lot of um, speaking for free where I can to charities and in particular try to find the ones who are in my community. Um, but, but I think that there's a broader role for all businesses, my, my own included, beyond that. Do you think you came to that conclusion now that you've had a bit of a some longevity in the, in the corporate life? Because what I find is that uh, I've recently joined a board of a, a not-for-profit and if I think 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been in the mindset to do that. Whereas now I am thinking more about things like contribution and, and giving back. Good on you. I think that's fantastic. Uh, I think people with business experience that, that then make an effort to go and sit on a board, especially a board for a not-for-profit or a charity. It's a wonderful way to give back uh, and share the experience that you've got to help grow an organization that itself does great work in the charity. So I really applaud that. I think, you know, to answer the second part of your question around it's a stage of career uh, thing that just happens to us. We sort of get it after a while. I wish it wasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm of the same mind. I, and if I look back, if I'm honest with myself, I go, yes, I'm doing, I'm having these conversations with, my, with myself now around what I'm going to contribute back to the community for my business and for myself. But the real reason I didn't do it earlier is because I was so self-interested. I was like, no, it's about me. Once I've got lots of money or all the, all the material things I want and feel set up and my business going well, then, then I can help the community. Oh, yeah, that's when I can do it. It's not right. I actually think the sooner you start on that pathway, the better it is. And it doesn't have to be big contributions. It should just be whatever you can manage, whatever you can do in order to to um, contribute, to give back, to to be aligned with your community's goals and to be, have a presence. That's, yeah, that's one thing I wish I'd just simply started it earlier. How do you measure your success as a leader? The main way I measure success at the moment is on business results. It's on uh, business results that I look at by uh, two, two or three main factors. So one is... Um, Certainly, I've set a target for myself on what I'm going to achieve for the year and have I achieved it or am I on track to achieve it with my team? So are we collectively going to, going to do our um, the thing that we promised, the thing that we intended and set out for? And I think that's important that I don't lose sight of that. It's, it's a responsibility I have. And without achieving those targets, then I can't employ people. I can't, um, you know, the business can't then bring in associates and, and create work opportunities. So that role I take um, very seriously. The other part of it is, and is just as big a part, is what feedback are we getting? Are our clients resigning with us? What's our churn rate? Are we making a genuine difference? And are we, are we giving a, putting in enough effort to really know that we're making a difference to those organizations and the communities they serve? Or are we just looking at happy sheets after programs going, hey, everyone really enjoyed that? job done so it's very difficult in training and development within organizations to, to have a one-for-one -one measure to say well we ran this program or we did this coaching whatever the intervention was and therefore they got an uplift in engagement or in in sales it's, it's not easy to do that because there are so many variables but what we do try to control for is is looking at pre and post stuff and as, as best as possible trying to get an indication around what we've been able to contribute to, to shift behavior and therefore have a demonstrably positive impact in each business that we touch. 
I'm always interested in, in leaders' views around networking, and I think that's came about because early in my career, I thought networking was something which sales and account managers did, but I've learnt now that networking is, is, is a responsibility which I think many, all leaders should adopt. What sort of your views on networking? Oh, well, I am a huge advocate. <laughs> so I think you and I have talked about this topic over coffee before. You can't run a business in a vacuum. You have to be networked. doesn't matter what level of the organization you're in. You need to get networked. All of us as salespeople at the end of the day, you need to be able to um, connect with people, to create opportunities, to share what it is that you do uh, and get to know who else is around and out there. A big part of what I do in, and when I'm out um, visiting my own clients is you know, trying to understand what needs they've got. And oftentimes they're needs that I either can't directly help with, but I can make connections and put them in touch. Like even just last week, I was we were running an exec program up in Sydney and I wanted to create a, a leadership panel to help this executive team address a fundamental issue that they're facing as an organization around rapid growth. So I, I got in touch with, you know, some senior people in other companies that had been through a similar period of rapid growth and had to lead through it and then said to these people, hey, you know, you've been through this period of rapid growth. What, what, what have you personally gained from it that you'd like to share? And would it be of interest to you to share this with other organizations and build your own brand and network? And every single one of them said, absolutely. If you would create that opportunity, that you know, that'd be great. And so, yeah, I had some really senior people at no cost whatsoever said, I will jump on a plane, fly up to Sydney, and I will be on your panel so that I can share my story. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to wait to get good at this stuff or wait to be senior. You can be doing this and should be doing this at any stage of your career is getting known for what you and how you can add value and contribute and find out what other people do. Be curious about business. Be curious about um, what other people do so that you can create opportunities to do really good, good, good work together. Mm. What about mentoring? Is it something you actively uh, do? Do you have a mentor? What are your views on that? I use kind of informal mentors these days. So I have uh, a couple of friends who have built, sold and rebuilt very successful businesses and you know, we do long surf trips together. We'll be in the car for maybe six hours or more on a given day, up and down the coast looking for waves to surf or um, spots to dive. And we just talk and talk and talk. And, and by sharing the challenges that I'm facing, they can share with me back what, you know, similar situations they found themselves in um, and how they got through those moments. And that has been some of the most valuable, um, you know, surf trips I've done as a result because not only did I often get good waves as a result but I came back energized around different perspectives and different ways of seeing things I think at any you know everyone should try to find those people that can formally or informally mentor them um, I wouldn't say to my buddies hey you guys are my mentor but we kind of play that role for each other so I'd like to talk about the future. Where do you think you're going to take Modus in the future and what does it hold for you? What does the future hold for you as a, in, from a leadership perspective? So with Modus, I'm still trying to decide what size organization we want to get to. And I mean that by headcount size, structurally, what we want to, what we want to create, um, the level of work that we want to be doing. And, and these are all really fundamental questions. So to get, um, to get to do the work that we want to do and make it, the difference we want to make in large tier one and tier organized tier two organizations, we need to be of a particular size and have exceptionally talented staff with broad experience bases um, that we can place into those clients to meet those needs. So we're in a sort of strategic planning phase at the moment to really answer that question. And that will, yeah, that will really determine where to next for us. But it's, it's so exciting um, to think that you've got the opportunity to, to stay stable and enjoy what you're doing or to create something very special uh, as a business within your community. So, yeah, I'm sort of looking forward to addressing and tackling that challenge over the coming months. And, I mean, we, we work in a, a, the, the, probably the same industry to a certain extent. What, what challenges do you think we're going to face in the, in, the, in the coming years? Well, I actually think that 
I'm looking at it slightly differently. If you'd asked me that a few years ago, I would have said, oh, e-learning, electronic learning, everyone's going to be going onto virtual <laughs> platforms and studying things online and um, without putting down that industry, because I think there's some wonderful work being done. It's not getting traction on its own unless e-learning is supported by the face-to-face um, because it just, we're trying to, it, ultimately we're trying to shape, shape behavior and change very ingrained patterns of behavior. And by watching a video, you can't, you can't get that. You need someone to, to challenge what you're saying, to, to test you, to get you to become more self-aware. So the, I actually see where we're at today is a wonderful stage because what technology is going to enable us to do is going to be even, even cooler in the years to come. So, for example, I think we're going to be able to get remote, uh, remotely based people to be able to wear virtual reality, um, you know, setups to be able to jointly meet in a team room and to uh, have meetings that way, to have uh, to create really novel business case scenarios where no matter where you are in the world, you can come in with your avatar, be fully present there and, you know, and do stuff, um, you know, tackle team challenges and work with each other. And I just think the, the future potential of this technology, even though my understanding of it is limited, is going to be a, a fascinating to watch over the, over the coming years. Yeah, I've, I've also seen, and I, I, I know that another... Uh, organization are starting to do it now but I've seen a life-sized 3d hologram beamed in uh, to a, a audience of 300 people and the facilitator was in Florida and the, the hologram was in Melbourne and I thought it was going to be something pretty average but I gotta say it was pretty spectacular Wow is that right he was, I was uh, interacting with the group too really yeah well, I had one interact with me. I was at the CBA Commonwealth Bank doing a, a keynote last year, and they had one of those on the stage, uh, which was supposed to be switched off. And it woke up halfway through my uh, <laughs> through my keynote and started talking to the audience. It was amazing, <laughs> completely unplanned and unscripted. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right about the online on its on its own. It's just certainly not getting the the traction, and that's actually. Uh, also, there's further evidence of that uh, from a qualification point of view because people that are doing online qualifications, their completion rate is absolutely dismal compared to people that are doing face-to-face. Are there any leaders which you look up to or that inspire you? One or two come to mind. One of the uh, people, uh, you know, person I've worked with quite closely was a gentleman by the name of Pete Manuel. Uh, who used to be the CEO at Johnson & Johnson and then moved to Fitness First a number of years ago. And the reason I, I single him out, I mean, sure, he had his, had his um, things he did well and he had his flaws as well, but I saw Pete work through one of the most challenging times in this organization's history. I mean, everyone knows Fitness First. You know that most of us know that, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that they were the dominant, uh, you know, a health club that was in Australia at the time and they had nearly a hundred clubs, and they uh, they went through a tumultuous time where all their margins started to get eroded because people were leaving their clubs faster than people were joining. When the twenty four hour swipe access club movement came into being, uh, along with things like boot camp and people training others out of their garage and on beaches and in parks, and it had a massive impact. And the thing that impressed me the most was how he led through that period. Um, it was a very challenging time for the business. And when you are in decline as an organization, a large organization, getting money is the hardest thing to do. Because you imagine if you go to any investment group or your board over you know, wherever they might be in the world and say, hey, listen, we're hemorrhaging money. We're losing members. And would you give us several million dollars to get out of this hole by investing in ABC? That's so hard to do. Not only did Pete do that successfully, but then he brought in, you know, the right people around him and really relied on his team massively, his executive team, to make some painful changes in the business in order to get that company back in the black here. And he had to make some significant sacrifices. And um, and he, 
in my view, it's a success story. It, Fitness First was ultimately um, acquired in Australia, but it was acquired um, once he had already brought it back into much better shape. So yeah, he's someone that I really admire. So if people want to know more about uh, you and Modus, where should they go? Thank you. Um, just jump on to modusleadership.com.au. You'll find us there or give us a call. We are based in Melbourne, but we work nationally and yeah, sometimes abroad as well. Um, so yeah, give our office a call and chat with Cass and myself. And yeah, we're on LinkedIn, but oh, not as active as you on LinkedIn yet, mate. I've got some work to do. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the, the, I tell you what, the, the whole social side of it is, is a challenge, and uh, you know we're, we're we're still working our way through all the different platforms. And you know, I've got to say, is the effort worth uh, always worth it? And uh, one of my team, uh, Ali, the producer of this podcast, went to a podcast conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, and all the presenters and they had some heavy hitters from overseas were were, were pretty adamant that. Uh, you know, social is there, but certainly don't hang your hat on it being the, sort of the the magic bullet or silver bullet to uh, really help grow a business. It just doesn't happen. Wow, that's good to know. Um, yeah, it's hard to really weigh up the the value of doing it. Um, you know, really investing heavily in it or um, or not. So I'm yeah, yeah coping with that one as well. So any last words on leadership, Ant? Look, I think we've covered a lot of really good ground in this uh, in this podcast. I think last word on leadership is don't wait to be perfect. Like just get in there and have a go. Um, whether it's sales leadership, regular leadership, um, stepping up into a more senior role in an organisation, you know, you just got to get in there and and give it a go and be open and ask for feedback and not take that feedback to heart. Go in with the best intent. The best leaders that I see out there are not perfect, but they're so open to constantly evolving and developing their skills. That that would be my single most important piece of advice I could share for today. <laughs> uh, on that note, Ant, uh, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Really appreciate it. All the best. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, look forward to catching up soon, Julian. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.